0: Hello everybody, this is Rabbi Ezra Balsam, and welcome to Parsha Pop, where we discuss three powerful takeaways from the weekly Parsha. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Yisro, and there's two main sections to this week's Parsha. The first section of the Parsha talks about Yisro, and he hears the news of the miracles that happened to the Jewish people, of the amazing, miraculous exodus from Egypt, from Mitzrayim, and he's inspired, right? Just like a good investor... He sees the growth of a stock of a company right from its beginnings. So, too, Yisro, he had that eye, right? He saw the growth of the Jewish people, that they were going to become this amazing, great nation instilled with the mission of bringing light to the world. He sees this from afar, right? He hears the news from Midian, and he decides he wants to be a part of this nation, this growing nation, this nation that's about to enter into a covenant with Hashem. Um, and that's as far as the first section of the Parsha. And this, the second section of the Parsha talks about the giving of the Torah, uh, Maimid Har Sinai, the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, and the covenant that we entered with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, with the Almighty, and our part of the covenant, as well as Hashem, what He promises to do for us as well, which we will discuss a little bit later. So starting with the beginning of this week's Parsha, we have Yisro coming to join the Jewish people. And when the, the Torah is introducing Yisro, it says, Yisro, he had this Vayichad experience on all the good that Hashem did to the Jewish people. And Rashi asks, what does this word Vayichad mean? We don't find it anywhere before in the Torah. He says, what does this word Vayichad? means? He gives two different explanations. The first explanation he gives is that Yisra was joyful. He was excited. Vayichad is a language of elation. He was so excited about what happened to the Jewish people. And that's what inspired him to want to come and join. And the second explanation that Rashi gives is that the word Vayichad means that his skin became chadadim, chadadim; They became uh, bumpy. He got, so to speak, goosebumps, right? He got the chills from hearing about what happened to the Jewish people, that Hashem saved us from the hand of Egypt. And he remembered, right, his old history was that he was an advisor for Paro. He remembered back in the day, oh, I was the advisor for Paro. If I had still been there in Egypt, right, if I hadn't run away from Egypt, if I had still been there, then I would have been punished just like the Egyptians That gave um, Yisro the chills, right? That got him a little bit nervous. Wow, I could have been there. Because of that, um, Yisro got goosebumps. So I want to come back for a minute to the first explanation of Rashi, right? The first explanation of Rashi is Vayifar means that Yisro was joyful. He was elated. He was so happy. He was so excited. And when we look at that word, it's a little bit of a funny word to use for being joyful. Usually joyful, we, we use the, the language of Simcha. We use the language of Gila, Rina, dita. There's so many words for joy in Hebrew. But one of them that we don't find is the word Vayichad. Where does this word come from? And the second question I want to ask is that when we look at the brisker of, he explains the following. He says that when Yisro got excited, the pasuk tells us, Yisro Yisro said, Hashem Asher Hitzil Eschem.' Blessed is Hashem who saved the Jewish people." And says the briskarav that what happened over here was the first case of somebody saying, uh, somebody saying the blessing of Hashem's kindness. And whenever something amazing happens to somebody, like a miracle happens, uh, somebody gets an inheritance, he generally says the bracha of. Hagomel, which is thanking Hashem for his kindness and says the Brisker rub, this is the first time where we find this blessing of Hagomel in the Torah. And it's said by none other than Yisro over the joy he experienced when he heard the good news of what happened to the Jewish people that we were freed from Mitzrayim. And the question I want to ask over here is how can it possibly be that Yisro was saying this goma blessing for the Jewish people, right? He didn't experience it firsthand. He wasn't actually part of the exodus of Yitzias Mitzrayim. He was, you know, he just heard the news. He was still in Midian. So can it be, right? Every time I read good news uh, in an article, in the Hamodia, in the Mishpacha, in a news article, right? I hear these miracle stories that happens to somebody. Can I possibly say, you know, the blessing of a goma every time? No, if it didn't happen to me then how can I possibly say the blessing thanking Hashem for his kindness? So I want to draw your attention to the Shulchanah for a minute, the code of Jewish law. And he says that a person is surprisingly able to say the blessing of Agomo, thanking Hashem for his kindness, even on something that happens to somebody else. I mean, even if something, you know, it didn't happen personally. I didn't personally experience the kindness of Hashem, but I heard about the kindness that Hashem did to somebody else, I'm able to make a blessing on what happened to the other person. But adds the taz, one very important clause. And he says the following. He says that you're only able to say this blessing if you have the experience of sameach beliboy, meaning that you're genuinely excited for the other person. He says that the only time you're able to make this blessing on something that didn't happen to you personally is if you feel genuinely excited. You feel that empathy for the other person, for his joy. Only in that case can you say the blessing of Hagomo for the other person. And I want to say that this was Yisro, right? He felt the joy for the Jewish people as if he was there. He had this power where he was able to leave his personal experience, his own selfish outlook in life, and he was able to connect with people outside of him. And that is the root of what Jewish unity is all about. And when we look at what the word for Jewish unity is, it's the word achdut, right? Which is the same root word as the word that we're looking at over here, which is vayichad. Right. So when it says Vayichad, that comes from the root of echad, right, to become one with the other person, to have achdut, to attach yourself with somebody else. And that was Yisro's strong point. He was able to attach himself with the joy of the Jewish people, feel it as if he was actually experienced it personally. And it was from that, it was from the Vayichad. It was from him being able to attach himself and become one with the Jewish people, with people outside of himself, that he was able to be so filled with joy that he was able to make this blessing of Hagomel on what happened to the Jewish people, thanking Hashem for the wonderful kindness that he did, saving the Jewish people from slavery. And this is such a powerful lesson of feeling genuine joy for another person. And this is really what unity is dependent upon. It's attaching yourself with the other person, feeling what he's going through, be it the pain that he's going through, be the struggles that he's going through, or on the flip side, being the joy, the amazing joy that another person feels, being able to feel that with him and be, yes, I'm here with you. That is what true unity is all about. That's the vayichat experience. And I want to just quickly mention when I put out this Devar Torah a few years ago, my elementary school principal, Rabbi Shlomo Goldberg, he asked me the following question. He says, how could that be, though? Right. Vayichar means excitement. It means joy. But when you look at the second explanation of Rashi, Rashi says it doesn't mean joy at all. It means quite the opposite. It means that Yisro got goosebumps, right? Naseh uh, and hadadan and He got these these bumps, the chills on his skin which means, right, that he felt the, the, the Egyptian side, right? He felt for the Mitzrayim, what they had to go through, that they got, you know, completely decimated uh, through Kriyas Yamsuf and through the leaving of the Jewish people. So asked Rabbi Gobark, he said that which side was Yisrael on, right? It seems like he's playing both teams over here, right? He's joyful for the Jews. And at the same time, he's wallowing what happened to the Egyptians. He's getting all nervous of what happened to the Egyptians. Which side was he going for here? Either he should have rejoiced and felt the side of the Jewish people, or you know, he should have got the chills and felt bad for the Mitzrayim. Which team was he going for? And I remember on my engagement night, It was actually the night of Super Bowl 2017. And the Patriots were down um, heavily, right? They were down. It was a a 9 to 28 lead from the other side. So the Patriots were down 9 to 28. It was the end of the last quarter. And I remember because we were in the middle of our engagement and people were like watching screens in the other room, you know, pretending like they were involved, but really following this very exciting game. And what happened was that in the last quarter, the patriots made a comeback and they made this huge comeback in the last quarter and ended up winning the game in you know the final seconds of the game and it was so exciting right people who were going for the patriots were so excited and i remember as well being like wow they were able to turn over the game this last minute you know score the touchdown fumble touchdown um it was it was quite amazing but i remember at that moment that everybody was rejoicing it suddenly occurred to me the other side, right? All of a sudden I took a look at the other side. And I was like, whoa, you know, yes, that means so much for this team. They're probably so thrilled, so excited, so happy. Um, the celebration, you know, was probably beyond, you know, to be able to come from a comeback like that at the last minute. But then you think about the other side, right? And what did the other side go through? Wow, they had this lead, right? They had this amazing lead. They had the game in the bag. All they had to do was hold on to, you know, a little bit of defense, But they gave it up the last minute, right? And they must have gone home with the worst night in their life, right? They must have gone home, you know, so depressing on such a down tone, Um, you know, coming home. Wow, we lost the game. We had it in our hands and we lost it. And this, I believe, was Yisro, right? He had this koach. He had. Attach himself to other people. To unify himself with other people. So he was able to feel both the joy for the Jewish people. Attaching himself to the joy of the Jewish people. At the same time he was able to attach himself to the pain and suffering of other people. And I believe that this is what we're meant to embody as Jews. Because we know that this is one of the prerequisites to receiving the Torah. Says the Pasuk "Vayichan Sham Yisrael Neged Ahar. Uh, and The Torah uses the language of "vayichan," which is singular right? And we knew that there were so many Jewish people, right? Of around 3 million Jewish people. Why is the Torah using the singular Vayichan Yisrael Says Rashi, that the reason why the singular is used, because we were Ki'ish Echad believe Echad, like one person with one heart. Meaning that when there's unity, that's the prerequisite for receiving the Torah. If we want to receive the Torah first, we have to have Jewish unity. First, we all have to Be there for each other, to feel empathy for each other, to do kindness for others, to be there both at their high times and at their low times. God forbid, when once somebody's going through, you know, an emotional struggle, God forbid, a physical struggle as well. We should also be there for the other person. And that's the prerequisite to receiving the Torah because the Torah requires a person to first refine himself, right? Before you can understand the mission that Hashem wants from you. We first have to refine ourselves, we first have to attach ourselves, think outside of ourselves, and connect ourselves to our brothers and sisters, to the other Jews. So let's remember, especially during these times, to feel the pain and the joy of others, to be there, you know, for the high times of others, if somebody's going through a simcha. Uh, through a happy time to share in that joy. Don't just ignore it like, okay, oh, yeah, yeah, you're just another person who got engaged. You're just another person who had a baby. Yeah, you're ready on your sixth kid. But no, to really be there, really feel, feel their joy with them, to share in their joy, and as well to share in their low times as well. If somebody's, God forbid, going through suffering, he's going through physical pain, he's going through emotional pain, he's going through some kind of stress in life, also to show that you're there for them, to send them a care package, to show, hey, You know, I'm thinking about you. I know what you're going through. And through that, we will be zocha. We will merit to receive the Torah and engage in the mission of HaKadosh Baruch Hu on the highest level possible. Now I want to move on to the second powerful idea that we find in this week's Parsha. And that is that Yisro comes down to the Jewish people and he sees Moshe Rabbeinu there. And he says, you got to reform the judicial system over here. Moshe is judging millions of Jews. They all want a piece of Moshe Rabbeinu, right? What should we do in this case? What should we do in that case? And he sees that Moshe Rabbeinu is overloaded. There's too many people, too many questions. Um, He says, Moshe, you're going to get burnt out, right? It's too much for you. You can't take this all on. You're going to get tired. You're going to get overwhelmed. Even the greatest rabbis, they can get overwhelmed. Um, it can be too much for them at a certain point. And so Yisro says that we have to develop a plan over here. And he writes up a business plan, sends it to Moshe Revenu, and he says, mm-hmm. right? He says, set up, you know, leaders of tens, leaders of hundreds, leaders of thousands, um, and anything that is great, They'll bring to you, right? Any great question they'll bring to you. Any big question they'll bring to you, right? Anything gadol, anything big. The kodavar hakatan and anything small, any small question, they'll judge themselves, right? They'll be able to take care of it. And he set up a hierarchy of asking the lower level rabbis and then the higher level rabbis and then higher level until finally it would get up to, quote unquote, the Supreme Court, right? Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, And if he himself didn't know it, he would ask Hashem himself. Moshe Rabbeinu approves of the plan, right? By Yishma Moshe Moshe listens to the voice of his uh, father-in-law, always a good idea, and he sets it up that way and says the Pasuk the following, when it comes to Moshe Rabbeinu um, actually putting into action um, the plan of Yisro, actually executing the plan of Yisro, the Pasuk says as follows, it says, Esadavar hakasha. Yevyun al Moshe. Anything difficult they brought to Moshe, Davara And anything that wasn't difficult, they judged themselves. So the question I want to ask here, which I heard from Rab Daniel Kalish, he said as follows: He said, We see a change in the language over here, right? In the beginning it said, right? That was the plan that Yisro proposed. He said, anything which is big. They should bring to you. And then when it comes to executing it, Moshe executing Yisra's plan, it says, Esadavar Hakasha, anything that was difficult, Yevina Moshe, they would bring to Moshe. And says Rabbi Kalish as follows, he suggested the following beautiful answer to explain the difference between Yisro's plan and the actual execution of his plan. Why the language is purposefully changed. From the word gadol to the word kasha, from the word big, big cases to the word difficult. And Rabbi Kalish answers the following gorgeous terats, the following gorgeous explanation. He says that in Judaism, there is no big and small, right? There's no such thing as a big, powerful mitzvah and as a small, you know, seemingly insignificant mitzvah. Uh, There's no, no such thing as, you know, a mitzvah that's worth more points and a mitzvah that's worth less points. So when Yisro originally suggested the plan to Moshe Rabbeinu, he said, you should deal with the big cases, right? The Google versus Yahoo lawsuits. When it comes to, you know, big claims, big cases, when it's something of importance, there's a lot of money on the line. That's when you, Moshe Rabbeinu, should get involved. And Moshe Rabbeinu, when it came to actually executing it, he said, no, 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 no even the smallest amount, even if the claim is only about a quarter, right? 25 cents. I'm gonna judge the difficult cases, not necessarily the big and small, because in Judaism, we don't judge a case, whether it's big, whether it's small, and we don't judge a mitzvah, whether it's a big mitzvah, whether it's a small mitzvah. In Judaism, there's no difference between a quarter and a quarter of a million dollars. They're both the same. In society, the sentence that you get how much jail time uh, that a person gets or you know how much punishment or how how much uh, parole he has to go on how long and his sentence goes according to how much he stole in Judaism if you steal a quarter from a person it has the same gravity right the same importance the same severity as stealing a million dollars why because it's not what you took away from the other person, right? It's not the fact that, oh, I, I, I caused him to suffer, you know, X loss. The problem is that you try taking something from Hashem that didn't belong to you. So it's the same gravity. Even if it's a negligible amount, it's nothing. Yeah, no big deal, right? Anything more than a pruta, anything more than five cents, it has the same gravity, the same severity. You borrow a dollar from somebody and you forget to pay him back. It's just as bad. As we're getting to pay somebody back, you know, a thousand dollar loan, a million dollar loan. It's all the same in Judaism, in Yiddishkeit. Why? Because we look at the effect you're having in the spiritual realm on Hashem, that you, that you transgress Hashem's word, whether it's a small amount, whether it's a big amount. Rabbi Khanan Wasserman, one of the great sages of pre-war Europe, he once saw a Talmud, one of his students, playing with his Havrusah's pen, with his study partner's pen. And he said, that's geneva, right? That's stealing. Most of us would think, what's the big deal? You know, I take his pen, I play with it a little bit. Ah, you know, and that's not something important. But to Rabbi Hanan, right, this meant eternity. This meant forever. And the same thing with Rav Steinman, a student of him, saw him giving a half a shekel to tzedakah. And he saw him like murmuring something, you know, be under his breath. So, you know, as any good student, you want to know what your Rebbe's up to? So the student comes over and he asks him, you know, what, what's Rebbe doing? I see you murmuring something. So said Rav Steiman that he said six million people died in the Holocaust. And I feel inspired to give every single day in their memory. So how much did Rav Steinman give? He would give a half a shekel, which is worth 13 cents, right? So can you make monuments? Can you make museums? Can you, you know, affect anybody's lives with 13 cents? Absolutely not. The student asked them, you know, 13 cents, that's all That's all Rebbe's going to give? It doesn't divide into 6 million that well. You know, you're giving for 6 million people 13 cents, said Rav Steinman. Six million goes into eternity very well. There's a lot of change when you're dividing six million into eternity. He, he viewed his act of giving tzedakah, even an insignificant amount, 13 cents, but it's eternity. You're connecting to Hashem through it. You're fulfilling Hashem's word. You're creating a point of connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to the Almighty. And that six million can go into eternity very well because every mitzvah that we do, no matter how big, no matter how small, it's eternity. It's Nitzri, it lasts forever. It's going to stay with us forever and it creates an everlasting uh, connection between us and the Almighty. So that's the second powerful lesson that we take away from this week's Parsha that when it comes to eternity when it comes to mitzvot we have to truly value every single mitzvah we should get giddy at the opportunity for every single mitzvah no matter how small and we should understand the severity of every small situation that comes our way right if the you know the teller gives us a little bit extra change or the lady at the grocery store, right? We have to know our life is on the line, right? This makes such a big difference. This is eternity for us. What does Hashem want from me in this situation? To always be asking ourselves that and to recognize that there's no such thing as a big court case, as a small court case. It's all irrelevant. Either it's Hashem's command or it's not. And that's all that matters to us. And now we get up to the final offering, the third idea of this week's Parsha. And this comes by the giving of the Torah. That before Hashem gives us the Torah, He has to give us a mission statement. Every big company, they have a mission statement. It's generally around 25 words. And actually, when we look at the mission statement that Akadosh Baruch gives us, He gives the Jewish people. What we're supposed to fulfill, what our mission, our purpose is in this world. He says, Ve'ata, and now, Im Shamoa Tishmu Bikoli, if you listen to my voice, Ushmartem Esprisi, and you guard the covenant that I'm about to make with you, meaning the giving of the Torah, Ve'isem li segula mikola amim, you will be to me a treasured nation, Kili kola arats, for mine is the entire land. And then Hashem finishes off, that's what I will do for you, if you listen to um, this covenant, this bris that we're making to accept the Torah, to follow all the uh, six thirteen commandments that I'm about to give you, and then Hashem says the flip side that what He wants from us is Atem and you Lee, you should be to Me mamlaches kohanim, a priestly nation, a kingdom of priests, the goy kadosh, and a nation that is holy. So we find in our mission statement. So Jewish People LLC. Uh, Hashem wants from us two things, right? He wants from us, firstly, to be a kingdom of priests, and secondly, to be a holy nation. And I want to explore these two ideas in a little bit more depth. What exactly does it mean, a kingdom of priests? What exactly does it mean, a holy nation? So the main question, when it comes to the first idea for Hashem wants us to be a kingdom of priests, what does that mean Hashem wants us to be a kingdom of priests? We know that priesthood only went to Aaron and his sons. It only went to Aaron, the Kohanim, right? The priests in the Beis Amikdash, they only went to Aaron and his children. So what, is Hashem, what does it mean that Hashem wants the whole nation to be a, a nation of priests? Even Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't a priest, even Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't a Kohan, even he couldn't serve in the Beis Amikdash. So what does it mean that Hashem wants us, all the Jewish people? the atem ti'yuli, you should be to me, Mamlechas Kohanim, a priestly nation. We find th- three different explanations brought down. The first is by the Ebenezer and the Ramban, and they explain that the word Kohanim means servants. The job of the, pr- of the priests of the Kohanim and the Beit HaMittash was to be servants. A priest is one who serves Hashem. Our task as a whole is to serve Hashem. So when Hashem was saying, I want you to be a kingdom of priests, I want you to be servants, right? Be loyal. Um, not a servant that's out just to get skar, just to get reward, but a servant that's truly invested in his master. Hashem wants a relationship. Hashem wants us to give it our all to serve Hashem with everything that we have and for our minds constantly to be focused on him. That's the Ebenezer and the Ramban's explanation of what Hashem wants from us, what the Jewish mission is, the Jewish role is in life. Now, Sadia going, Rashi, and the Rajbam explain the word koanim a little bit differently. They say it means princes. King David's sons are described as koanim, even though they weren't koanim in the term that we know it. They, were, they didn't serve in the base of Mikdash. They weren't fit to serve in the base of Mikdash, but they were called priests um, because they were princes, right? They were, they were the sons of a king. It means a language of royalty, right? So the second explanation is that koanim means royalty. And Hashem wants us to behave like royalty, right? He wants us to always be cognizant of the fact that we're sons of the king. What would the son of the king do when he is screamed at in the supermarket? What would the son of the king do when somebody cuts him in line, right? Is he going to get angry? Is he going to get stressed out? What would the son of the king do when somebody embarrasses him, when somebody's disrespectful of him? When, you you know, anything that you're going through in life, what would the son of the king dress, right? How, How would he dress? How would he behave himself? What would his language look like? Would he, you know, spread gossip about other people? Hashem always wants us to have that on our mind. He wants us to be a kingdom of priests, meaning a kingdom of people living on a higher level, on holding themselves accountable to a higher level and living a more elevated spiritual and moral life. So that's where Fasad they going, Rashi and the Rishbam's explanation. The Sephorno has, interestingly, a third explanation. And he says that what the Kohanim were in relation to the Jewish people is what the Jewish people are supposed to be in relation to the rest of the world. Right. So just like Aaron and his sons, they were meant to serve Hashem 24-7 in the Beit of Mikdash, you know, doing all the services, the the personal services of HaKadosh Baruch of the Almighty, so too Hashem wants each and every Jew to be that light to the nation, to be that example to the rest of the nations of how a person is supposed to live, to be an example, to teach the entire human race that all should call out in the name of Hashem. And He wants us to be an example of how a person is supposed to live on a higher moral level in this world. So we have those three explanations of what it means to be a mamlechas Kohanim, a kingdom of priests, right? How could the whole nation be priests? The answer is either that he wants us to be um, his servants, he wants us to behave like a prince, and he wants us to live on a higher level. And the takeaway over here is that our mission as the Jewish people is that Hashem wants us to live like servants, like princes. He wants us to live on a more elevated level to teach the rest of the world what it means to live on a higher moral level, what it means to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu, what it means to believe in Hashem, and what it means to follow in His ways. He wants us to be an Orla Goyim, a light to the nations, to spread kindness, to spread faith, to spread bitachon, trusting in Hashem, um, to spread what, what does prayer look like? What does connection to the Almighty look like? What does it mean, you know, ben adam judging a person favorably, not spreading gossip, always giving people the benefit of the doubt? What do all those things mean? He wants the Jewish people to be a living example of what that means to the rest of the world. And that's the first part of the mission statement that Hashem entrusted us with, to be a Mamlechus Um So we should always remember Throughout our day-to-day life, it's so difficult. We get caught up in everything that we're get that, that we doing. Our business efforts, our efforts with, with our family to raise the best children, our efforts to be the best spouse possible, our efforts to be the best friend possible. And in every endeavor that we take on, we should always try and remember to behave like princes, to behave like servants of Hashem, and to set an example of what it means to live with the ideals that Hashem wants us to live with, Namely, his Torah. And now we get up to the second part of our mission statement, which is, Hashem wants us to be mm-hmm. a holy nation. And the question I always asked is, you know, what is holiness? I remember reading, meeting Rabbi Belsky. I got to see him. My brother's like, quick, Rabbi Belsky is here it was Simchas Torah in um, Shlomo Yehuda Rechnitz's show. And I, I had literally like two minutes in between Alios while they were calling people up to the Torah. And um, they have a little interim in between over there. And, you know, my brother said, if you want to ask him something, it's right now. And the one question I wanted to ask Rabbi Belsky was, what does the word holy mean? Right. I said every single day in Shimon. it's right. Your name is holy. You are holy and holy people are you know praising you every single day. But what does the word holy mean? It's such an elusive word. And we think we really know what it means in its true essence, but it's such a difficult word to understand. Does it just mean, you know, spiritual? What does spiritual mean? To really try and pinpoint it is so difficult. I was reading Rabbi Sachs, Covenant and Conversation, and he writes over there from a fellow by the name of Rudolf Otto. And Rudolf Otto famously defined holiness as being a sense of being in the presence of something vast and awe-inspiring. And says Rabbi Sachs that in Judaism, it's exactly the opposite. It's not uh, Hashem's transcendence and mystery. That's, That's not how we describe holiness, right? Hashem being beyond us. That's not holiness. How we describe holiness in Judaism, it's in, always in relation to Hashem's involvement with humanity, right? how we have a close connection to us, how he's here, present in our world, right? Not how he's elevated and beyond and awe-inspiring. It's how Hashem chooses to be with us, to, uh, to show his presence with us. And he says that there's two times where we find the word holiness used in the Torah. The first time is the only time that the word kadosh is used in the entire Bereshach. And it's in reference to Shabbos. Hashem blessed the seventh day, and he marked it as holy. This is the only time that holiness is used in the entire and It's in reference to Shabbos. That's the first time we find the word holy used. And the second time we find the word holy used is in regards to the mis- Mishkan. The innermost sanctuary is called the Kodesh HaKadashim, the Holy of Holies, meaning that the sanctuary, the Mishkan as a whole was considered holy. And then there was the Holy Shabbat Holies, right? The the Debir, the innermost part of the Mishkan. And that's referred to as Kodesh HaKadashim, the Holy of Holies. These are the two things that we find that are referred to as Kadosh, as holy in the Torah. And if we take a little bit of a deeper look, we'll find, interestingly enough, that Shabbos is the time that we make for Hashem. We stop creating and we experience being creations. We stop making and we experience ourselves as made. It's a window of time where we see the presence of Hashem in our lives. So Shabbos is the time that we make for Hashem and Mishkan is the space that we make for Hashem, right? The Mishkan was a large portable tent. Whenever it was put up, it defined a certain space as being holy, as set aside for Hashem. Um, it was a space defined by Hashem's will, not our own, which is why we had to enter on His terms. It was a very specific regiment in the the avoda, the service um, that we had in the Mishkan and the base of Mikdash. And nowadays, what space do we have that we can confine, you know, just the service of Hashem? That's our shoals, our batte midrashos, our, our study halls where we study Torah, um, where we pray to Hashem. And the shoal is essentially the space that we make for Hashem. We separate it from um, the rest of the world as this is going to be a defined space where we serve Hashem. In. And that's why typically, especially, you know, when you look in halacha, the shul always has, you know, special halachot, special laws um, that dictate whether you're allowed to eat in them. You know, a person's not allowed, to, not allowed to eat. He's not even supposed to, you know, speak regular, non-regular mundane talk when he's inside the shul. He's always supposed to have Hashem on his mind because this is the space that we're meant to be making for Hashem. So we find that the word kadosh is always used in the space or time that we make for Hashem. What we separate for Hashem. So the common denominator of the word kadosh, of the word holy, is that it's the space that we make for Hashem. And when you look in Kabbalah, we always find the, the, that when Hashem created the world, he used a concept called tzimtzum. Tzimtzum means, namely Hashem like effacing himself. Hashem retracting. The word tzimtzum means to retract. Hashem had to retract himself from a certain space in order to create space for our independence. And this is essentially like such a difficult concept to understand, right? Hashem pulling himself back. What does that mean? How can the infinite separate himself from a certain space, a certain time? But the main message that we take out of this, the reason why um, it's so important to know about this concept called Tzimtzum, is that just like Hashem had to retract himself and create a certain space, in order for us to live, in order for us to have independence, in order for us to exist and have the ability of free choice, of free will, so too our job is to do the same. Our job is in our you know, mundane lives, in our day-to-day jobs, to create space, to create time for Hashem to now enter and to be able to serve and connect to Hashem. So our job is just like Hashem He did symptom, right? He retracted himself to create space for us. So to our job is to renounce ourselves and create space for Hashem to fill our lives. And so the word kadosh means to let Hashem into our lives. When you make something holy, you're letting Hashem, you're creating space um, for Him to live, for you to connect with Him. To make space for Him as He makes space for us. Connection and relationship is when two people make space for each other, That's the Jewish people and Hashem. And that's the receiving of the Torah where Hashem says, I want you to fulfill my mission in this world. I'm going to take care of you. Our mission in this world is to live in constant connection with Hashem, to make space for him. When we're shopping in the supermarket, when we're, you know, driving in our car, when we're taking care of our daily business efforts that we make, our hishtadahs that we make, when we're talking to our wives, when we're talking to our children. When we come home, when we eat, everything that we do should be in a state of and a state of constant connection with Hashem, making that space in time and space and and physical space to connect with Hashem constantly on a day-to-day basis. That is our second part of our mission as the Jewish people is to be a Goy Kadosh, a nation that is holy, a nation that makes space for Hashem and is constantly connecting and involved in the relationship between us and the Almighty. Let's try and remember these three powerful lessons. Firstly, to connect yourself with other people, Jewish unity, to feel their joy, to feel their pain. Secondly, that there's nothing big and small in Judaism. Everything is connected to eternity. Everything is part of our service of Hashem. And thirdly, to remember our mission statement as the Jewish people, that we're supposed to be living on a higher moral level, taking everything into account and living our best selves. And secondly, to be a guy kadosh, a holy nation, to always make space for Hashem in everything that we do, every moment of the day. And to be in a state of constant connection with our Baruch Wishing everybody an amazing, powerful, uplifting Shabbos. Thank you all so much for listening. Hope to see you next week.